Welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast where top executives share their insights on leadership and talent development. I'm Mary Herman, Managing Director of Global Executive Coaching at BPI Group. I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, Mike McGowan, BPI's Managing Director and Practice Leader for Leadership and Talent. BPI Group helps people and organizations develop and change to enhance their resilience and success. In this episode, we'll speak with Dr. Jeff Barr, Chief Aurora Medical Group Officer at Advocate Aurora Health and President of the Aurora Healthcare Medical Group. We'll discuss Jeff's views on the top issues facing healthcare today, efforts to combat clinician burnout, and the Advocate Aurora merger. Jeff, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, discuss the topic at hand. Let's start by talking a little about your background in internal medicine and how you evolved into a leader at Aurora. Well, I come from a family actually right here in Chicago. No healthcare professionals in my family whatsoever, but my family was a high utilizer of healthcare. So I had a lot of exposure to physicians, both surgeons and primary care physicians alike and actually had the privilege of being cared for by many fine pediatricians growing up who um, significantly influenced me through my childhood. So I chose medicine as a career at a fairly young age. When I got into medical school and training and had to pick a specialty, primary care was an obvious choice. It was a real avenue by which I could form relationships with people and help them at the same time. Uh, I combined my love of science and human interactions and uh, actually was very promising. And as I said, in my family, no other doctors, so no one to whom I could be compared. <laughs> so it was, it was nice. Through my training, I took on a couple of leadership roles, chief resident in my residency class in Milwaukee at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and had the benefit of having a chairperson at the time, a guy named Dr. Dick Olds, who treated his chief residents like junior chair people. So was given a lot of responsibility, authority, but also held accountable. And that was very helpful to me at a young point in my career. When I left, I joined a, when I left my training, that is to say, I joined a a large physician-owned group, a multidisciplinary group. And in that environment, being a physician-owned group, each one of us was really called upon to be a leader of his or her practice, but also of the business of medicine, but also of the clinical practice as well. And so it was a great environment for a young physician to really learn the ropes from some great mentors along the way, one of whom I still work with very closely after 20 years in medicine. So that's been great as well. And I had the opportunity to fail, quite frankly, very early in my career, but also recover from failure and learn and course correct on the fly. And I had a lot of skin in the game. I was a business owner. I was one of 200 plus physicians who owned the group. And so the opportunity to really dig deep and really get into the nitty gritty of clinical practice and the business and really be tested in not losing clinical steps while gaining business acumen and and leadership acumen along the way. Since that point and since affiliating with then Aurora Healthcare, the opportunity to take on larger responsibilities over time presented themselves, and I was encouraged along the way to take a swing at those, quite frankly, and whether it was just managing a group of physicians and practices or engaging outside parties that might want to work with Aurora Healthcare at that time. So leading a group of primary care doctors, 
a multi-specialty group of doctors to ultimately leading the current group of 2,000 physicians and 1,500 or so advanced practice clinicians in, in our Wisconsin footprint right now. But it's allowed me to explore other topics, Medicaid strategy, academic medicine, our training programs, things of that type. Jeff, you just described a lot of growth that you experienced yeah. as a practitioner. At the same time, I know healthcare has changed a lot since when you first entered as a practitioner. What are some of those biggest changes you've seen, as well as maybe some of the biggest challenges you've experienced? A great question. I think if you look back to when I entered full-time practice, it was still very much a pay-for number of things that you do, as opposed to our current environment that is rapidly shifting toward payment based on the value that you provide, the quality of the care that you deliver. So that's been a major change, and it's being tracked at different paces in different parts of the country. And even within our own footprint, certain parts of our own geography are insulated from the pace of that change. Nonetheless, the change is there. Capitation, in other words, payers holding your reimbursement constant and allowing you to determine how you're going to spend that on patient's care has been a constant gradient throughout my career. I think the, I won't say assault, but a definitely downward pressure on the clinician-patient relationship. In some cases for good reasons, it's consumerism, convenience, but to some degree healthcare has been commoditized and that's not always good, but in some cases it is good. And then the unanticipated burden placed on clinicians. I know we're going to talk about burnout a little bit, but I think most of us when we enter healthcare, whether we're nurses, doctors, advanced practice clinicians, there are certain burdens that we accept, that we anticipate, that we expect. Long hours, stressful situations, dealing with people when they're not feeling their best or facing unique challenges in getting people the care that they need. But there are significant upside too. It's certainly the compensation, the, the nobility, the positive notoriety of being a clinician, in particular a physician. That's still a respected profession, but there are a lot of unexpected burdens placed on clinicians that have been, I think, increasing in number over the years that I've been in practice. We've become increasingly litigation-oriented in our society, and that places downward pressure on our clinicians as they practice. The financial strains, the expectation that we will provide greater services, provide more with less reimbursement, fewer resources, the electronic medical record, the rapid availability, exponentially available information that patients have that they didn't have before that puts clinicians in situations and conversations that perhaps they didn't anticipate a long time ago. And so we're confronted with, uh, I won't say fake news uh, or fake information, but we are dealing with patients who are maybe following health paths that we would not advise. Certainly the composition of the team that cares for patients, it's not just the doctor and the patient anymore, but I think nurses have taken on a well-deserved and increasingly prominent role in caring for patients as have pharmacists, physical therapists, and a myriad others, healthcare navigators, and positions we didn't even dream of 25 years ago. You recently worked with BPI Group on addressing clinician burnout, something that you mentioned in the previous answer. Will you explain a little bit about that work and some of the results and action steps that came out of it? I think to ponder burnout appropriately, we really want to think about it as any other, quite frankly, disease. And it has stages, it has degrees of severity. And if you look at physicians and nurses in particular, and advanced practice clinicians, the nurse practitioners and PAs, given the situation in which we are trained and the environment in which we're trained and then kind of released into the wild to go practice, 
I'd referenced the aforementioned list of unexpected burdens that are placed on, on all of us that we didn't expect when we entered the profession. It's already a stressful environment because you're caring for people in an environment where they're not always at their best. We deal with life and death, acutely or chronically. And then at the same time, I mentioned the relationship that a lot of us seek with our patients has been somewhat minimalized by consumerism, by outside disruptors for good or for bad, and sometimes technology. Technology can be good or bad relative to that clinician-patient relationship. There's bad technology that attempts to supplant that relationship, and then there's good technology that fosters that relationship. And so to some degree, the practice of medicine has been depersonalized, and that feeds upon an already susceptible population of clinical caregivers. And so all caregivers, all clinicians are at risk for burnout. Many caregivers have a mild form of the disease, a moderate form of the disease, or a severe form of the disease. And the reason that's important is because burnout impacts the quality of care that's delivered. It impacts the relationship that clinicians do or don't have with their patients. And it impacts those clinicians outside of work as well. It interrupts marriages, families, interpersonal relationships, spiritual relationships, all those things that we kind of take for granted in day-to-day life can be significantly and negatively impacted by burnout. And if we don't address it, if we don't understand it, healthcare as as an industry is really going to suffer. I'd point to the suicide rate among clinicians, especially clinicians in training, doctors in training, residents, the suicide rate among resident physicians is skyrocketing. So in terms of the work that we did with BPI and others within our organization on burnout, I think a lot of the project work was aimed at defining the problem. So often, physicians are guilty of jumping to tactics instead of looking at a problem, defining it, and then measuring it. So that's really what we endeavored to do. And the the unique element to how we went about it in partnership with you was we engaged our clinicians, but we engaged the non-clinical caregivers within our system, our team members, really from across the spectrum of the organization to get fresh eyes and ears on the problem at hand. I think that was very helpful. So we were able to go about this in a very common sense way, but defining the problem so that we could then measure the problem. And then instead of just smearing assets and resources, blindly solving the problem, really focusing our resources where the issues were the greatest. And I think that was the most important thing. So we weren't spinning our wheels. And the other thing, the other corollary to it was, it brought greater attention to the problem internally as well. As a clinical care team, we're well aware of the problem, at least from the 40,000 foot view. Not everybody in a healthcare organization is aware of burnout and the, the significance of it. A lot of people, you know, might in a weaker moment say, you know, the doctors are just whining, the nurses are belly aching. And that does happen, and that worsens the problem because it alienates the people suffering the greatest from the issue as well. So it's still a little early in the game to see what the overall results are. But the other good thing about it was we engaged those suffering from the issue and suffering from burnout in the solution. And that's very empowering to the people suffering from burnout. So we can plan, do, study, and act with the people really embroiled in the issue. And sometimes it's not acting. It's what we need to stop doing, stop acting on as well. Yeah, that's key. I remember being part of that action learning team. And what you just said, is burnout really the problem or is it a symptom of a greater problem? Really understanding what the root cause of of that is. Yeah. Jeff, you also worked with us on emergency department optimization. Why did the emergency departments need changes at Advocate Aurora and what did you do to address them? When you look at emergency medicine, whether it's a single hospital or a large system like ours, 
The emergency departments are frequently misused by patients, not throwing blame, but I think the state of medicine is such that access is at a premium. And as I mentioned, not every patient has a solid relationship with a primary care clinician, for example. And so they wait to the last minute or they go to the emergency department to get their routine care, which is not a good match of consumer and uh, product, right? And so you have a glut of people seeking care, rightly seeking care, in our emergency departments. And so it causes delays and the people who truly have emergencies aren't getting the right care at the right place at the right time. And so what we really wanted to do was make our emergency departments more efficient because it's what I would call a triple win. It's great for the patients. It's very satisfying for the clinicians caring for those patients. And it's a benefit to the system because we're able to be better stewards of our resources then. So it's not about putting people on a conveyor belt and shooting them through, but it is about meeting emergent needs in emergent fashion. And so we were able to leverage technology in a fruitful way that put the medical subject matter experts in direct contact with patients in an expedited manner. So really fostering that relationship via technology, all with that triple win in mind. And so that's what we did. So as a patient might come into the emergency department, they're quickly assessed, but a physician or other order issuing clinician might not be available to immediately see that patient physically. So the technology allows an offsite clinician who might be less busy at that point in time to get the ball rolling, get the orders going, get an x-ray ordered and executed, get other things going, so that by the time that physically present clinician enters the room, he or she is greeted with those results already. And the patient benefits because he or she isn't waiting as long. So you get that information that's extremely gratifying to patient and clinician alike. And it has an overall benefit on the system, as I mentioned. Let's pivot to something that's likely been keeping you and your colleagues busy over the past couple of years, the merger with Advocate. Tell us what surprised you most and maybe the thing that surprised you the least about the combination. I think what surprised me the most was actually how smooth the early relationship formation occurred. I think it stemmed from our CEOs at the time. They really did a great job of setting the tone laying down tracks for the rest of us, setting expectations. Here's the work at hand, go do it. And it was interesting to see how much alignment there was on safety, health outcomes, consumer experience. So the vision on those things was fairly congruent. And that was surprising because I know that sometimes culture can win out on that and can actually detract from the work at hand. And I think the team at the time did a very nice job of keeping the work primary on the list. And that was a pleasant surprise. In terms of surprising me the least, the issues that confronted both organizations leading up to the merger were fairly common, aligned. Again, we were subject to the same headwinds that the other organization was, whether it's financial downward pressure, payer relationships, engagement of team members on both sides, wanting to enhance our performance on all those things. Again, it, it was not surprising to me that we had a same list of issues confronting us. It's hard to believe we're now approaching the second anniversary of the merger. I know there's always a lot of focus on the early transition plans, first 90 days, first year, even two years. What further changes or actions are planned going forward? 
I think first and foremost for the organization is a transformation strategy. So we've targeted 2025 as a date by which we will have several elements of transformation in place. I'm most involved in what we would call our core transformation. So taking the practice of medicine to the next level, modernize it, really touch our consumers in a way that we haven't touched them before from an information standpoint, from a convenience standpoint, really making sure that we're not just meeting their needs, but anticipating those needs. And that includes a digital health strategy that's rolling out. We provide video visits across three states now from a core team. So that's been a real nice step forward, and we look to really capitalize on that. We've got a great container or app for our consumers. Whether they want to engage us in a traditional clinical sense or in some other way, we want to be there to meet them. But then also what we would call a transformation B strategy or really building out businesses that we would call healthcare adjacent. So not direct clinician to patient, but really organization to consumer. How are we meeting the needs that don't come through your more traditional healthcare encounters? Whether it's retail business or innovative strategies, we're really working on that as well. Obviously, medical group integration is something that I've been working on for a long period of time. I have a counterpart in Illinois, and he and I are working together to bring our two very large employed medical groups together to standardize the care and meet the same standard across our entire footprint, irrespective of what state we're in. So really creating a consistency in that healthcare experience, consistency in how we engage other traditional healthcare partners in our mission to create a safe clinical enterprise and really breed excellent health outcomes. And then many have no doubt heard that our CEO, Jim Scogsberg, has talked about growing our organization, really more than doubling our revenue by that target date of 2025 through unique partnerships with culturally similar organizations or organizations that have a similar mission, vision, and drive. So that's very exciting as well because we know that we're not alone in this journey from a national standpoint. And so I think the Advocate Aurora relationship is just a seed that's been planted and you're going to see that grow in other directions with other organizations and other novel partners. From a leadership and talent perspective, what have the two organizations learned from each other over the last two years? So I think as a leader, I recognize gaps in my, in my own cadre of talent. And now I've got several new team members in Illinois from whom I can learn that have been through different situations, other situations, or perhaps analogous situations that I'm going through right now or will go through. And so now I've got a playbook that I can readily borrow from. And likewise, an example, Advocate Healthcare part of the merger was well-established in population health, shared savings, things of that type. And we at Aurora had not been as far down that path. We're borrowing significant knowledge from our colleagues in Illinois, coming together to really standardize our strategy on population health across our footprint. Likewise, in Wisconsin, our medical group has been fairly mature in its development of specialty-specific clinical service lines, our physician leadership program, and uh, things of that type. And so really being able to share those learnings and best practices with our colleagues in Illinois as we go down that integration path between the two medical groups. And I'll really emphasize the importance, especially in healthcare, of having strong clinical leadership. So developing leadership among physicians, nurses, advanced practice clinicians, and others, so that you have people that have lived on both sides of that clinical, non-clinical line. Because I think then you really get harmonization of operations, financial priorities, and, and things of that type. 
Jeff, you've done a beautiful job of talking to us about your history and background. If you could go back in time, what would you tell yourself about leadership that would have helped you at any point in time? Sure. I think, number one, patience. You can't have enough of it, but also knowing when to be appropriately impatient. I think that's very, very important, especially when you are harmonizing two organizations keeping people on task toward that common point of cultural integration, I think that's a good time to be appropriately impatient. I think um, no matter how much we try, we never communicate enough. And I think that was a a lesson that I learned. We talk about over-communicating, and I don't think I've ever been guilty of over-communicating as evidenced by people's reaction in my own medical group, thinking that, well, what do the doctors care about the Department of Human Resources harmonization. Well, they care. I mean, they care. And if they're not in the know, they're going to assume bad intent, which is the next one. Assuming good intent, obviously. And then the last is coming to work each day with the frame of mind of assuring somebody else's success. I think that's probably the most important thing. Entering the building saying, okay, who am I going to help succeed today? If everybody's doing that, it's going to be a pretty good day. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Taking the Lead is a production of BPI Group, and the views expressed are those of the host and guests. For more information, please visit bpi-group.us. Music for this podcast is courtesy of Jazzar.